He's a war photographer. He's covered wars and conflicts since 2004. He was held hostage, brutalized, tortured for 81 days in Syria. He's here to talk about that and much more. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you've got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Calling us from New York City area, we have Jonathan Alpery on the phone. Jonathan is a war photographer. He is also an author of the book, The Shattered Lens. We'll get more details about that in a moment. And he went through a horrible situation where he was abducted, tortured, brutalized for 81 days in Syria. Jonathan, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's an honor. And... Right off the bat, I got to tell you, my hat's off to you. Doing the thing as a war photographer, you put yourself in really bad situations to see really, really bad things. And I just want to tell you, in my career in law enforcement, there's still things that pop in my mind. They don't keep me up at night like they used to, but I get nightmares. And there's a lot of things that you just can't unsee. No, it's true. There are similarities between you know the law enforcement profession and people who actually go to war either as soldiers or as war reporters, as you do this for many years and over time different layers of the different experiences, as you just mentioned, add up to one another. And hence, you know, that um, significant expression that a lot of people use is now called having a, a PTSD on, on these, um, the, for these moments. Now, when it comes to, to that specific aspect of consequences of uh, our line of work, is that it's true over time, uh, people, and people react differently in terms of how resilient they are over time, especially when it comes to seeing different horrible things, either as a police officer, a fireman, a soldier, a war photographer, and so on and so forth. Or, and um, th- this, I would say, is a, a strong element to understand how each individual is able to um, deal with, with um, these experiences. And for my part, uh, I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. 20 years as yes. a war photographer. Yeah, so my first big assignment was in 2001, so it's been 20 years this year. But my first war was in 2004, so I've covered about uh, actually 14 conflicts. And some some of these conflicts I've covered many times. One of the things that I think that people really need to understand right away, I don't have a point of reference to compare what you've been through. I can only go by what I went through. And while policing in America, in Baltimore in particular, there's a lot of violence, a lot of trauma, a lot of things you see. When we talk about going to cover a war in a different country, we're talking about a totally different 
aspect of trauma. The amount of exposure you saw has to just be mind-boggling. So, in terms, so there are different things that uh, you see that obviously everything stays with you until you die. I mean, uh, you know, as they say, old soldiers fade away, and it's very true as an expression because these moments always stay with you, and of course, it fades away a bit as you get older because memory works in strange ways. For me, for my part, uh, being a war photographer, the, the, the hard thing is not so much being in the thick of the action. It was more, uh, at least psychologically, uh, when I've, I was going, for example, leaving my, my house, being in a taxi, going to the airport, and then flying. Because it's usually at these moments, and I have this less now because I'm older, but um, that maybe I shouldn't go on this trip. Maybe I have to put the key in the door to lock the, my apartment, I should just stay home and maybe I will survive. So there's always that little voice inside your brain that tells you, well, maybe you should just sit this one out. It's happened that I've canceled trips because I had a bad feeling and sometimes you have to follow your gut feeling and I've done that often as it saved my life actually um, during a, when I was covering the war in Nepal in 2005 when there was a lot of fighting between the Maoist rebels and the Royal Nepalese Army. I had a bad feeling about um, a convoy, so I took the one after, and the one I was supposed to be on got ambushed, and they were all killed. So I would have been killed there. I just had a bad feeling. So I took the following uh, convoy to reopen that, a road that was closed by these rebels. So sometimes you just have to, to follow your gut feeling, and that's something you have to find within yourself. It's not really something that you can learn. No. And I think experience plays a, a lot in that, and you know, always trust your gut. I, I tell people this all the time. You know, whether it be God-given or na- Mother Nature, whatever your beliefs are, if something makes you really uncomfortable, says this, this just isn't right, something about this makes you feel really badly, trust your gut, trust your instincts. They're, they're there to save your life. One of the things I find amazing about what you do, Jonathan, is at some point in your career, you decided, this is what I want to do, and you said, I think your first war you covered was in 2001. 2004. 2004. And what, where was that? Yeah. So uh, these are conflicts I started covering in the North and South Caucasus. So like the Republic of Georgia, South Ossetia, Nagorno-Karabakh, these places. That was my baptism of fire. Now, it's true, I did go to a war zone in 2001, but I didn't see any combat, so I don't know if I should include it. 2004 okay. is when I, I heard the first bullets flying. At what point in your life did you decide, hey, I want to be a war photographer? This is what I want to do. I've, I'm convinced that this, I was born to do this in the sense that I was, got, I was very good at it quickly. And uh, there are multiple reasons. The number one reason is because I have a lot of family members who fought in all the big European wars. Uh, World War One, World War II the French colonial war of Indochina in the 1950s, and Algeria as well. So I kind of grew up in that. would listen to my uncles and grandparents' stories. So I, I was very, very quickly, very early on in my life, uh, introduced to that world. And some of them were pretty big, t- were, especially my grand-uncle, the famous French war hero in World War II. And, um, and the second thing is that's more intellectual and it's more who I am as a person is I've always been very interested in history, which is what I study at University of Chicago as a his- medieval, early medieval European history major. And to me, being a war photographer is being part of history. 
And what better way to be able to just go into these circumstances and uh, and experience history firsthand and then report that back to the general public? Two things come to mind very quickly, Jonathan. It's, it's, I'm currently watching a documentary on Netflix called Five Came Back about uh, Hollywood directors that went and covered World War II and started making uh, propaganda films. And I don't, I don't say that in a negative way. Secondly, I'm an older guy. I, I, as a teenager, the Vietnam War was going on, and I was heavily influenced by the work of war photographers and, and video journalists and all those people that were there covering that. And I grew up in a military family in a military town, and we saw the consequences of what so many of these men at the time, all the combat people were men, and, and women that served in like the medical facilities went through. I went to school with kids whose fathers were POWs for a long time. I went to school with kids whose fathers were uh, missing in action and, and never returned. And those things, those photos, will leave a mark in my memory and not necessarily a bad one. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. From the hit TV show, Murder Chose Me on the ID channel, retired homicide detective Rod Demery gets personal on the Law Enforcement Today radio show, which is also available as a podcast. You can listen anytime you want, from anywhere you want, on your smartphone, computer, or wireless speaker devices for free. Check out the podcast episode with Rod Demery, Season 2, Episode 13. Go to letradioshow.com or search for Law Enforcement Today Podcast. The show is brought to you in part by the Change of Culture Podcast, hosted by a female cop. Look for it wherever podcasts are served. That's the Change of Culture Podcast. You can also find it at autumnclifford.com. Return conversation with Jonathan Alpiri on the Law Enforcement Today show. He is a war photographer. He's been doing it for over 20 years. He's the author of the book, The Shattered Lens, A War Photographer's True Story of Captivity and Survival in Syria. We've got to talk about this, Jonathan. This sounds like something from Homeland or one of those shows. You were covering the, the war in Syria as a photojournalist. What happened? So this was my third trip into uh, the war zone. Um, I went twice before, the year before, different area closer to the Turkish border. On my third trip, I decided to go closer to Damascus, uh, which wasn't covered as much. The war in Syria, compared to other wars that have been covered, like Libya and, and other conflicts at the same time, that were happening at the same time, Syria is a much different ball game and a very different conflict and it's in terms of its intensity and violence and the casualties that were taken on military sides, rebel side and civilians was obviously a real intense and dense conflict, uh, which we hadn't seen in a while, actually. So it kind of weeded out a lot of reporters who, who want to cover wars and do something a little dangerous. Syria was more for people that uh, were quite experienced and uh, knew that the chances of getting killed or kidnapped uh, was much higher than other conflicts, like Libya, for example, and, and such. So on my third trip, I was oper operating with a rebel group uh, about an hour and a half north of Damascus, 
which was held by rebels, but was on, heavily contested at the time uh, by the government who's trying to get it back, partially because it was quite close to their capital city. So they were using Hezbollah uh, infantry. And uh, they were able to grind back a lot of these territories. Uh, so anyway, I got captured after two weeks operating this area, which was very dangerous. How did you, how did and, you get captured? So I, I had... I towards actually it's interesting because in the last two three days that I had I wanted to go to a different area, and uh, the contacts I had agreed and it actually turned out to be a trap. So um, the rebels I was going to be working with for a couple of days who were fighting the government and of course I found that out later uh, were looking to kidnap Westerners uh, to fund. So it was kind of an opportunistic kidnapping, and I was the only guy around anyway operating this area. So. They brought me to a different part of the front line, pretending that I was going to be embedded with some of their troops. And actually, it was all fake. So um, they captured me at a checkpoint, and uh, they had guys wearing masks, and they just pulled me out of the car, put me on my knees, and then they, start, they pretended to execute me with uh, with their guns. And then they cuffed me, and they put me in there. After blindfolding me, they put me in their, in their pickup, and they drove very quickly. I remember, couldn't see anything. But it was very fast. And then my captivity started uh, that day. So you're going to what you thought was another assignment and a, a checkpoint. And you were accosted at gunpoint. Had a, you thought you'd be killed at that point, And they put a hood on you and took you away. Exactly. I mean, at first you don't really realize what's happening. Uh, things were a bit in slow motion. And actually the first thing that came to mind was that it was a mistake. And that it would quickly be resolved. Maybe that some rebel groups didn't talk to one another. So I wasn't that worried. But then when they started torturing me that day, because I went through a period where they were torturing me for a couple, that's a couple of weeks, three weeks. Not every day, but almost every day. And then I realized that I was in trouble and that this was not a, not a mistake. I think I'd have realized I was in deep trouble probably five or 10 minutes into it. But one of the first things you said that really resonated with me was when when I went through really violent attacks, the first thing that came to my mind was disbelief. This really isn't happening. It can't be happening. And secondly is, why are they doing this to me? They don't even know who I am. I get the mistake portion of you thinking, why is this happening? Yeah, so so all these different feelings are, are going through, and you try, but you also try to rationalize because I remember telling myself, well, I'm covering their side, and I'm wasting my life and trying to get their story out, so they should be helping me. Except, of course, that uh, in war, uh, in, in war zones, rules don't apply the same way, or there are total different sets of rules which don't uh, work or even exist in a more normal setting. Obviously, it wasn't personal to kidnap me, and at the end, that's what they wanted was money. So to have an uh, international uh, photographer in their hands was a good opportunity to get uh, to get that money. So after you said for about a couple, couple, three weeks, you're being tortured quite often? Without being graphic, what were some of the things they did to you? Well, I mean, there are different kinds of torturing. So... Uh, in terms of physical, like they would beat me up. That's pretty much what I, I went through. So at some point, they actually smashed my ribs. So you go through that. The beating itself for the mock execution were okay. I, it was more like between these moments that were hard because you anticipate 
and you know it's going to happen again. And remember when I said earlier in the interview, when I said, oh, uh, being in the combat zone was okay, it was more about the travel to get there, which made me a bit anxious. Um, once you're there, you're there. So when, once they're torturing you, it's what it is, and you take it. Of course, there are different kinds of torturing. If they're really like using electricity, for example, like cutting me up, stuff like that, then that would be different. Taking a beating is, it's okay, you can deal with it. Um, there were guys that were captured, there were locals, and they were tortured very differently. Like they would, uh, they were in the next room over and they were released dogs on them and used different kinds of equipment to beat them. So they went through a, a more intense kind of torture. And obviously when you're worth that, when you capture someone like me, you're worth a lot of money. They don't want to kill you because if they do, then they don't get the money. So they, they torture you just enough to break you down psychologically. So you try maybe not to escape or you're just mentally broken, but they don't hurt you enough to, to be, for it to be life-threatening. But you said there were mock executions in there as well. Yeah, so I went through a, that, I went through a lot of them. So like machine gun fire next to your ear or like pistols. Sometimes, once I remember they came with knives and they were doing interrogation and one guy was like, playing with the knives, saying they were cut off my head. So that, that I was scared for that specific moment because being beheaded is obviously a not pleasurable experience. Being shot, I was okay with because it would be quick, so they being done with. And I remember sometimes I would hate them so much that I was hoping that I would be dead so they wouldn't get anything from me. So you actually think like that sometimes. Did they think that you had information that could help their side? I mean, you were there covering their side of the conflict. Yeah, I mean, the, the, actually, that rebel group who controlled these areas, about a thousand strong, and obviously that information I'm about to disclose, I found out after when I was released, they had a lot of pressure from other rebel groups uh, who were not happy because they were holding me. Clearly, it was giving a bad image to, to the, the, you know, what they call at the time the rebel movement, which obviously was a lot of Islamist uh, components into it and more and more as the, the, the war progressed. But um, so they, they, this was a very calculated move from their end, and they got the, they got I think about half a million dollars, and that money was used uh, for their war effort. And as a matter of fact, the warlord who had given the order, which had met many times while I was in captivity, was shot and killed with his secondhand man, which I, I knew as well. We're going to take a short Maybe break. We are talking with Jonathan Alpiri on the Law Enforcement Today show. He is a war photographer and also author both the shattered lens a war photographer's true story of captivity and survival in syria don't go anywhere we'll be right back want to win great prizes in awesome contests who wouldn't want that it's easy just sign up and subscribe for the law enforcement today radio show email newsletter we won't spam you no more than two emails a week i promise all subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Jonathan Alpiri on the Law Enforcement Today Show. He is a war photographer and author of the book, The Shattered Lens, A War Photographer's True Story of Captivity and Survival in Syria. You were held captive and tortured for, was it 81 days? Yes, 
Uh, so that's the exact number. And actually, I was one of the first ones to be captured. And there were many other foreign reporters who were captured. Many were killed. Of course, you think about James Foley and these guys. Many. Obviously, he was beheaded, stuff like that. So I was very lucky to be out. I was also lucky because my captivity was not as long as others who were held for a year, year and a half. Uh, now the torturing, we all went through that. Now, the situation that was harder for me was more that the military situation in the area where I was held was declining on a daily basis. I remember quickly, as soon as I was captive, uh, I'm sorry, I was captured, um, so I was blindfolded and I was attached to a radiator for a couple of weeks, so I couldn't see much. But there was so much fighting going on, like right next to the house and all uh, all over, basically being bombed by jet fighters, helicopters, artillery, and the rebels were fighting back. I remember at one point I was just sitting there blindfolded, and there's a pickup truck with a, I'm assuming it was an uh, anti-aircraft machine gun that was parked right next to the window of the room I was held, and started blasting fire up in the air, too, because you could hear the helicopters dropping bombs. So, And then as, the, as it progressed, then the Hezbollah infantry was closing in. So that I started to understand that we were in trouble because a lot of the rebels, instead of watching me, were going off to fight more and more. So you would see them, and they were really stressed out. Like they were in combat more and more. So you could tell something bad was happening. I I think the anticipation of what's coming next, it would be horrifying. And earlier in the interview, you mentioned fear of being beheaded. And the first thing that came to my mind was the, the video and the images of Daniel Pearl. And I'm thinking, how does one survive the thought that this might be something that could be happening to me, maybe tomorrow, maybe next Tuesday, and that they stage fake mock executions? None of this makes sense to me. None of it kind of like jives with what I experienced. I think uh, to answer this question properly and honestly, there's no way to fully describe what you go through because you would have to go through it yourself. To understand, and then you would have to find within you the resources necessary to climb these mountains every day of, of this constant back and forth and different situations you're dealing with. I, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a very famous, they, they made a uh, World War II uh, officer, paratrooper, um, Winters. You know, they made the, that TV series. The Band of Brothers. Um, yeah. Band of Brothers, exactly. So, anyway, they asked him. Kind of a similar question. His answer was perfect, and it, 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 it encompasses everything. And he said, it, no one can teach you that. And he was talking as an officer to his men who were in fear of jumping into battle for the first time against the German army. And he said, you have to find it within yourself to, to, to make it, and that's, that's on you. No one can help you really with that. And I think it's so true. I mean, you can have a good officer, you can have a strong personality because you had good parents, whatever circumstances. It does give you a guideline and some direction, but at the end of the day, you still need to pull through, and that's for you to do that. And that always brings to that incredible intellectual idea that great men, I'm not necessarily talking about me in this case, obviously, but great historical figures are born out of crisis. They're not born out of peacetime. So when, when you have that in mind, then great people that we value today, like a, a Charles de Gaulle, for example, or other great historical figures, 
they became who they are because he went through two world wars. He was in Verdun. So he had a lot of experiences and that made him such an imposing uh, figure. And I think that's the only way to know and to find out if you have what it takes to become a, a great person and someone who is very resilient. I remember growing up as a kid, going to visit relatives in, in Jersey and New York, and my family immigrated from Ireland. My grandparents and, and their whole families came over, and we had uncles that fought in World War II and, and were in Normandy and all that. And they were, they're great people. They're phenomenal people. You, you made a great point. You said, great people are born out of extreme pressure and crisis. They do great things. We look at these men, they seem like regular guys, and they never talked about it until they started drinking. And then they started talking about it, and it was, I remember being like 10 years old, listening to these stories and go, oh my, I, ha I can't imagine this. And this doesn't, this doesn't correlate with a man that I know and because he's a peaceful guy. Every day of his life, he's a peaceful guy. But that day and subsequent days and what he went through were so violent that you have to summon something from you from somewhere to counteract that. I think this is a fascinating anthropological question because I also believe that this is a generational difference. The men that you're describing, they were thrown into a significant uh, war that changed everything. Now, there's that, but there's also these older generations have now mostly disappeared, and the ones before had a very different perspective of life. And they had, of course, a much simpler life, but they also knew and understood, maybe because they were raised like that, and that's the way society was. If life threw your curveball, you had to adapt and you had to man up and not complain about it. Now we've created a multitude of new generations, I would say the past. Four generations, and it's, and it's gradual, it's getting worse and worse, it's become just like that, but who are the complete opposite? And they are very uh, narcissistic, in contrast to what you're describing about your, your family members. They went through these great experiences, and I mean great in a historical sense, huh? and uh, they never showed, like, they didn't show off. They didn't have to, and it wasn't part of their DNA. Now today, people show off about everything, and they've done nothing. And to me, that decline uh, is very telling and it's very sad because, for example, and I might shock some people, but when it comes to COVID-19, it was bad, it's true, but it could be so much worse. Now I understand the new generations don't have much of a reference to other crises, but they should also be being reminded by people who've been through a lot that this is nothing and it could be so much worse. And if this is all you can take, then we're in trouble as a society because what if tomorrow COVID variant becomes 10% deadly and people die and then it's much more. Then what are you going to do? These people are going to mentally collapse, a lot of them. So I don't know how you can re reconcile being able to be strong because of a crisis, but because also you're, you're not so strong because society has made it this way. So I think it's a very interesting question to ask ourselves. I think it's different with people who, you're from France originally, correct? Yes, I am. I think it's different for people from Europe that violent conflicts and wars, you said two big ones, World War One, World War Two. still the aftermath of that is ingrained in part of your society and culture. 
and you're, you, you mentioned earlier in the interview, you grew up with family members that fought in these conflicts. Yes, and um, even though I didn't experience these wars, I wasn't born, I wasn't alive, their testimony and their presence, their historical relevancy, it, may, it means everything, not only as an individual, me in this case, but also as a nation. When someone talks about World War One and France lost 1.4 million KIAs in four years, let that sink in for a second. In four years, France lost 1.4 million dead soldiers. That's more than all the U.S. wars the U.S. has been involved in since the beginning of its independence in the 1770s, in four years' time. I feel something. It makes me, it's not just sadness, but because sadness is a very, very partial feeling, but I, I really feel something historical. And that's, that's, that's what I mean is that because you have this testimony and from one generation to another, you have to remember. And we're going to take a like short break. We're over. talking with Jonathan Alperi. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. There's so much more to talk about. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603-800-451-8603-800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603. Conversation on the Law Enforcement Today show with Jonathan Alperi calling us from the New York area. He is a war photographer and he was held captive, brutalized, tortured in Syria for 81 days. He's author of the book, The Shadow Lens, a war photographer's true story of captivity and survival in Syria. Before we went to break, Jonathan, we're having a conversation about something I think that's really important is that I don't know where it happened here in the United States, but somewhere along the line, people stop talking about the incredible resilience of what some of these men and women went through from World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, whatever it might be. And we, we're not learning lessons. And I, I think that's much more prominent in the culture of Western Europe in particular, because I don't know much about Eastern Europe. So that prompted you to get into becoming a, a combat photographer. These stories yeah. need to be told. That's what I'm getting at. I think that we're, we're doing ourselves a big disfavor, dis, disservice if we don't tell the stories of these people that what they did and how they survived it. So there, there is a portion of the U.S. population that's traditional and, and patriotic, and they do respect what you and I are describing. And it's partially because a lot of the soldiers come from these, these, part, the, the, these parts of the, the United States. Now, it's true there's another portion, the more urban side of the U.S. population, who has kind of strayed away from these traditional values, which, uh, which is the foundation of what a nation state is. 
of what it means to be an American, what it meant to be an American for the generations before us, and so on. And obviously, in today's cognitive war that we're having, the division within the U.S. that's, that's happened, that's very telling and actually quite uh, quite scary. I think that it's, it's always important to uh, the young generation to be taught and remember what their forefathers did, not so much because of the, the results and, and why, but because of this, the self-sacrifice. At the end of the day, you always have to respect people who fight uh, in a war, for example, even if it's your enemy, for the one simple reason that they're putting their lives on the line, whether they're as volunteers or they have to go. They're still facing death because, as we all know, when, if you get killed, it's gay, that's it. It's game over. There's no... Uh, that's it. And just for that element, people need to be respectful. And of course, for July 4th, there's a lot of people who are, you know, more on the progressive side who are saying all kinds of ridiculous things. I think it's disrespectful for all these people, police officers or anybody wearing the uniform who's actually going out there and defending the, the, this nation's interest. And um, I think this is very dangerous. And when you have something like this, the, it exacerbate this division within this country. And I think it's, if we continue like this, in my opinion, the U.S. will uh, will be in serious trouble. I agree with you, and I'm very concerned as well. I, I want to get back to your story. When did you realize you're being released? So you don't know until you're actually free because you don't really know what's happening behind the scenes and you find out a lot of information after the fact. Uh, I remember when I, I was smuggled back into Lebanon in the trunk of a car, and so I was held a few more days and then ended up escaping, and, and I ended up at the French embassy, and I was picked up by the French military police. It was only then when they grabbed me and they put me in the French military car that I knew that I was free. That was, that was really then, but that was really at the very, very last moment. Before that, you don't really believe it. I would imagine that's where the real work for you started because you had a lot to recover from. So, again, I might sound a little strange as an individual. I actually bounced back pretty quickly. And the reason is, like I was trying to explain before, is just the way I am as an individual. And there's a multitude of reasons of why I'm like this, which we don't have time to go into. But I was, so it's true, I was off uh, for couple of maybe two months and then I started bouncing back and I'll tell you and the reason why I bounced back for the most part is because uh, I went back to Egypt so four months after I was released to cover all the bombings and the riots it was quite pretty intense and then the war in the Ukraine started in April 2014 and I covered that war for two years until I was injured during a battle but that's just the way I am uh, it doesn't work it doesn't mean that it's works with the other guy but for me it was quite cathartic to go back into dealing with checkpoints in ukraine i was driving all the time going from one area to another and there were so many checkpoints maybe i was dealing with 10 12 a day and every time i dealt with a checkpoint it reminded me strongly of when i was the very moment i was captured and it's true that was hard but just keep pushing it i keep doing it then it went away for the most part so that's how i dealt with it do you do okay in times when you're not in conflict? You're not covering these battles and you're just by yourself and things are quiet? You, you mean if I'm not in a war zone? Like, yeah. Am, am like, I what, okay? The rest of your life <laughs> yeah. when you're home, are you are you like yeah. a cool cat all the time or are you like, I don't know, I'm bored? All right. So, yeah. So there is that element of boredom, which is a terrible thing because 
uh, you you're you're looking for the next thing and some action. Obviously, that's part of the uh, of the of the process. But I do have a very active social life. I have a very good family. I'm close to my family. I have a lot of friends. So I'm you know I do have a normal life too. However, there's always and people that are close to me will tell you the same thing. Is when you spend enough time with me, I'll zone out. Like I'll just sort of stare and uh, I'll be somewhere else. So that happens quite a bit with me. Um, but that's just part of my personality, you know, from all those experiences and people that are close to me know this. So when I zone out, they're just like, oh, he's just somewhere else, which is where until he comes back. Yeah. So my, that, ex, my ex-wife used to call mini vacations. She said I would just, all of a sudden I'd be there, <laughs> then I'd be gone for 20 minutes. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't like a bad that. thing. It's a, it's a coping skill. It's like, uh, you know, when life gets too intense and I need to shut down, I find a way to shut down. I find a way to get back to my center so that I'm not adversely affected by all the nonsense that's going on. No, it's true. And, you know, whatever works for the individual, do it. You know, whatever it is, yoga, I don't care what it is. If, for me, surfing. Like, I surf a lot. I've been surfing for over 20 years. And Mexico, I go to Mexico a lot to surf. And that's a good way for me to, to uh, unplug and... Uh, and refresh myself. So when you spent a, a little while where you start to get back to your center and say, I'm going to do something, and you made a decision that you want to write a book about this, tell us about the book and the process of writing it. So the process of writing, it was very cathartic as well because I had to remind myself of very specific details and a lot of different things that had happened during these three months. So to put that on paper, obviously, is helpful, and that could be actually a good way to emerge out of, uh, of a funk that you might be into after experiencing something more or less similar. That being said, the book is not just about Syria. It's also about a lot of different experiences I've had in different wars, and the last chapter is about um, the, how, what Europe is becoming and, and where it's going into the name of the book is called okay. The Shattered Lens, A War Photographer's True Story of Captivity and Survival in Syria. Where can people buy the book and get more information about you? So people can Google me. I mean, I'm, I'm very well known in the profession, so that I'm easy to find. Uh, for the book, they could go to Amazon. That's probably the best way to get it. And your website I'm looking at is John, that's J-O-N, Alpiri.com, A-L-P-E-Y-R-I-E.com. That's right. And uh, something tells me you're still getting ready to go cover more conflicts. So, yeah, actually, I was the last time I was in the war zone was recently. I was last fall, so six months ago, I was covering the war in Armenia, uh, which I don't know if maybe some of yours uh, know, don't, but there was a, a very brief but vicious war that lasted 44 days between the Azeris and Turks against the Armenians, and I covered that in full. So there's no rest for you, is there? Well, I mean, it's actually quite, uh, it's not sound strange to say, but it's actually kind of quiet in the, on the war front. So, but COVID obviously has slowed everything down. So I was very active covering COVID in Brazil and Amazonia in Mexico, France, and the U.S. So I was traveling a lot last year, about eight months. Jonathan, I can tell you, I'm very inspired by your story. I'm very inspired. I'm going to look up your book. It's called The Shattered Lens, A War Photographer's True Story of Captivity and Survival in Syria. Have you ever watched an episode 
of homeland or something like that where people are being abducted and tortured and held captive. That's what Jonathan went through, and I'm so appreciative of you sharing the story here with us on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Thanks so very much. Thank you so much for having me. Have I got a deal for you? No, I'm not trying to sell you a bridge or swampland. Enter contests for your chance to win great prizes by subscribing to the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.